Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, yeah, Kevin, when he sent me a note, he's like, hey, I'm going to set you up on Sunday. Well, where I work, like if someone's going to set you up, you kind of worry about it a little bit. They're like, oh my gosh, what are they, what's he going to set me up with in the introduction? But uh, I'm grateful for, uh, for the introduction and, uh, and the kind words. Yeah, it definitely feels a lot easier when you don't have to work through a translator. Like it feels like everything after that will be very, very simple. I know that just English alone likely I can get through this type of message, so I should be in, uh, in good shape today. Uh, well, my name is Craig McAndrews, and I do work out in the marketplace. I work for a mattress firm. I share that uh, because I think it's important to understand some of the background when we talk about ministry. And I want to get one thing out of the way early just to be done with it. The answer is yes, you do have to replace your mattress every eight years. So let's just throw it. I share that because when I was at Infusion, I taught a, a lesson to the group, and after I shared that story there, and after the lesson, someone came up to me, and they're like, I have a question for you. I'm thinking, man, not, they're going to ask me a question about some truth I just threw down on them. They said, do you really have to replace your mattress every eight years? <laughs> yes, you do. So, um, no, I'm excited to be here. This opportunity, it's a real honor. Uh, first of all, first Sunday of 2016, I said, I feel like a leadoff hitter a little bit, getting the year started. Tomorrow, for many of you may or may not know, it's the 18th anniversary of FCC. So that's an exciting time. How about that? <laughs> Kevin told me the 11 o'clock service, he goes, they'll be more awake and engaged, Craig. So they'll clap and other things like that. The 930 service, they are very, very quiet, still waking up, I think. But... It's been an honor in that I've gotten so many texts from people praying for me. People have texted me like, like their prayers that they actually said on my behalf, which has been awesome. As I've spoken with my family about this opportunity, uh, that's been some great conversation. My oldest son, though, he's 15, so you might be able to get this. He, his first question he asked me was, so, you going to say anything about me? What are you going to say if you are? Don't worry, I'm not going to say anything about you. My youngest son told me, he said, hey, look, if I go to the first service and stay awake, is it cool if I sleep at the second service? <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, but he, we didn't have him come to the first service, so I might be worried about him in the, uh, in the second service. I could see him. So, And then my, my wife, she says to me, hey, um, are you going to be worried at all, like if Pastor Rick is sitting down in the front and you start to say something, and he shakes his head like this, like, don't do that? <laughs> Well, no, until you said that to me, and now maybe I have to worry about it, but um, I'm not going to worry about you guys over, uh, over here as we go. So, Now, I'm going to talk to you today about the idea of ministry, but ministry being a mindset and what that means. And I'm going to start with a question for you, which might be an odd question given the setting that we're in and where we are, but my question for you is, why do you go to church? Like, why do you go to church? Why are you here today? And typically, people fall into three categories of why they go to church. The first category is tradition. They have just gone to church. It's been what they have always done, whether it's part of their family or whatever, but they have gone because of tradition. It's just something that happens. The second category of people fall into this category of reason, which is that somewhere along the way, they got to a point where they said, you know what, we should probably go to church. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what the purpose might, but we should just kind of go because it's kind of the right thing to do. The third category of people fall in the group of revelation. And revelation, that group, is where God opened their hearts somewhere along the way, delivered a message. Maybe it was through a person. Maybe it was at a church service. Maybe it was through an experience that they knew that there was a greater purpose, that there was a creator. And revelation 
made the difference in the way that they led their life. The Bible talks a lot about revelation. In fact, the way God works through revelation, I'm going to do a quick illustration here. And so for the sake of the uh, insurance company at the church that I had to get the sign off on is, uh, I'll, I'll actually wait till everybody's sitting down, uh, just because we're going to turn the lights off here in just a second. And it's going to get really, really dark. But this illustration is how God works through the gospel and through our relationship with him. So if you guys would turn off the lights. There was a point in time, the Bible describes it, that everybody before Jesus Christ lived in darkness. And then at a point in time when God revealed some truth to them, a little bit of revelation, it's like a little bit of light comes on. And then as you lean into God's word and you pursue more of what he has to offer you, a little bit more light comes on. And then as you engage in the ministry and the opportunities around you with people, a little more light comes on. Sometimes the light comes on, boom, really big and fast. Other times God revelation works over a period of time. See, when Jesus delivered the message of the Great Commission, if you remember the people he delivered it to, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were everyday people back then. But through the revelation of God, they realized that they had an opportunity for a bigger purpose. They became part of the body of Christ. So one of the questions I have for you today is whose job is the ministry? Whose job is it for service? And I'm going to suggest a truth to you, which is the responsibility for the ministry does not belong to the institutional church, to this building, nor is it exclusively the role of the pastors, the professional Christians. Really, the ministry belongs to people like you and me. When Jesus gave that great commission, there weren't any professional pastors, preachers. It's just people that took the word of God to more people, who took the word of God to more people. And that's how the gospels moved across earth for the last 2,000 years. And that power of the gospel changes lives. And you are looking at a person on stage right now whose life was changed. I had to get the dates uh, with my dad uh, when I asked him this, this story, but it was 1994, and I came to a church very much like this church, big church, cool band up here, which I'd never seen that before when I went to church. Pastor, he was dressed like in casual clothes, never seen that before when I went to a church. And I heard the message of Jesus Christ and born again. And I walked out of the church, and my dad said, hey, so what'd you, you know, did you hear anything? What'd you think? And I said, look, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. That born-again stuff is weird to me. And uh, quite frankly, that church feels a lot more like a cult than anything I've ever participated in. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Thank you very much. And that was 1994. I'm a slow learner. It took seven years uh, for God to work on me and change my heart. And then at a church service... I heard a guy talk about the idea of you can have religion, but you can also have relationship. And I'd never heard about a relationship with Jesus. And when I did, I knew I wanted that. I didn't know what it meant, um, but I committed my life to Christ 14 years ago. And when I think about the idea that 24 years ago, or 21 years ago, uh, that I said to myself, 
I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the cross. See, before I met Christ, most of my teens and 20s, I spent all my time chasing everything that didn't matter. None of it mattered. I got a lot of it, but none of it mattered. And then when I met Jesus Christ, life changed. I mentioned earlier my two sons, my wife. The gospel changed the way I saw people. It changed the way I saw where I should spend my time, how I should spend my money, where I should engage emotionally. It completely changed my life. And at that time, the other thing that I experienced was this idea of being in the ministry. I met a guy who asked me if I'd ever spent any time looking at the Bible. I said, no, I've never spent much time. I mean, I looked at it, but I don't know much about it. He said, would you like to know more about it? I said, sure. So we would meet every Friday. For about three years, we met every Friday. And we'd sit and we'd talk. And we'd talk about business and life and family and all that stuff. But at the end of every conversation, he would say, Craig, why don't you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, verse 34? And why don't you read that verse? Or Proverbs 16, verse 5 and 6. Why don't you read that verse? And I'd read those verses, and they were exactly on point to what we had been talking about the whole time. And in that three years, the Bible came to life for me in a way that I never knew that it could. What I also didn't realize at the time, though, is this guy was doing ministry. But he wasn't a guy who told me, you should go do ministry. He did ministry. When he showed up in my office and walked me through the Scripture and talked to me about Jesus Christ, I was like, that is the ministry. And that changed my life. So what about you? Do you consider yourself a minister? Might be kind of a weird term. When was the last time you talked to somebody about Jesus? Well, when was the last time, more importantly, maybe that you said, hey, would you like to receive Christ now? I can show you how to do it. Or maybe the last time that you had someone who was struggling with a challenge or an issue in their life, and you said, you know what? Why don't we go take a look at the Bible and what the Bible says about this to see if we can find anything? I don't ask you those questions to make you feel bad about what you're doing, but just to challenge you to think about the ministry that's offered through Jesus Christ. See, the Bible tells us that we're given a work to do. We are given a work to do. In fact, you know the Bible calls us saints? The Bible calls us saints and tells us that God created us for good works or for service or for the ministry. Those words are interchanged in the Scriptures, service and ministry, but that so we can go do. In fact, did you know that the Bible refers to us as priests? Now, I know that word in our culture today, priest, can be a bit polarizing. It's one of those like, eh, I don't know about things I hear about priests. So I'm going to redefine it for us here just real quickly. Think about a priest in this definition. The priest is someone who talks to people about God and talks to God about people. It's that simple. Talks to people about God and talks to God about people. See, in Old Testament times, the priest acted as an intermediary between God and people. You actually couldn't relate to God. You had to go through the priest. The priest's responsibilities in Old Testament was they shared the word of God, they prayed for people, and then the really important part was they administered all those crazy sacrifices to make sure that sin was covered and now people could relate to God. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, he actually ushered in a new way. In fact, symbolically, if you remember, if you've ever read the story of the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, symbolically it talks about the curtain being torn from top to bottom. That curtain, big curtain, was in between the inner part of the temple and the holiest place of the temple where once a year the high priest would meet with God. 
That was the only way to relate with God. But when Jesus died, that curtain was ripped right in half. No more intermediary. No more middleman. Now we can go directly to God. The author of Hebrews covers this idea of the priesthood of the believer in multiple chapters. But specifically, in Hebrews 6, 19 through 20, he writes this. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Jesus entering within the veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you have a, one of the Bibles here at the church, the New Living Translation, it, it says, leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. This is what Jesus did. Reset the deck. No more going through somebody. I can get you to God by coming through me. And that made all the difference in the world. The apostle Peter wrote it like this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, whenever you read so that in the Bible, this is where we really pay attention because he's asking us to do something, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you from darkness into his marvelous light. We talked about darkness and light earlier. He says, you're a royal priest. You're part of a royal priesthood. Now, what comes with that is a responsibility to engage in God's work. And this engaging in God's work can be with the people you're around, right where you are, right what you are doing. Sometimes we think about ministry in terms of I need to go do ministry. Guess what? Ministry can be done right where you are, right who you are with. See, the truth is that every follower of Christ has access to a ministry. Every one of us who has chosen to follow Jesus has access to a ministry and can be a minister. Paul highlights this in his letter to the Ephesians, which if you have a Bible, chapter four uh, in Ephesians is what we're gonna spend most of our time on, but I wanna give you a little backdrop, a little background on Ephesians, and they're gonna put a map up here in just a second. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that Ephesians, or Ephesus, is located today in modern-day Turkey. This is a real city. Now, we're not talking about, back in that time, a city that had dirt roads and camels and dirt houses. In fact, Ephesus was the third most populated city in the Mediterranean world. Just Rome and Alexandria were the only two cities that were bigger. They had modern architecture. They had modern infrastructure. It was populated by Greeks and Romans and all different people, big mix of cultures. In fact, if you would think about it today, I kind of think about it in terms of the Bay Area. It could be, we could be the Ephesus of the modern times. Paul took the gospel, the message of Jesus there in 52 AD, so call it 20 years after Jesus himself died on the cross. And then a couple years later, he went back and he started teaching these teachings to the church. But again, when we talk about a church in Ephesus, we're not talking about like this church. I mean, we have big buildings. There's buildings all around the, all around the city. We're, these were house churches. These were like small groups, families, extended families. This, that's what the church was in early Ephesus. And there were already many religions that existed at the time. So you can imagine the challenge when they brought this new way, this new message of Jesus Christ and the issues that they could run into. Well, in chapter 4, Paul begins with this idea of living in unity, living a life worthy to relate to each other, which you can get. You've got Gentiles, you have Jews, you have Greeks, you have Romans, big melting pot. You can imagine how unity would be a big issue. 
guy once told me the quickest way to get to unity is to add two people into the mix. I mean, if you get one person, you'll have unity. As soon as you have two, eh, unity is, becomes at risk. In chapter 4, Paul writes about this purpose of ministry. And then specifically in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, which I want you to follow along here. And listen to what Paul says as he's talking to the Ephesians. He says, and he, talking about Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for, and this is the key word, for the equipping of the saints. This is us. For the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See, Paul says, yes, I gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as teachers, but for a purpose, to equip the saints. You come here, we come here to be equipped, but to be equipped for something, which is to go do something. That's the awesome adventure that comes with following Jesus Christ. Paul wraps up chapter 4 with this idea of finishing with the purpose being the growth of the body of Christ, building up of the body. So the purpose of the work is to build up the body of Christ. So what about you? If I gave you a blank piece of paper and at the top of it it said, what is my ministry? How would you answer that? What is your ministry? How would you define it? Well, there's two characteristics to a biblically-centered ministry. And the first characteristic is this idea of motive. And the motive has to be from the perspective of bringing people to Jesus and encouraging them to grow deeper in their faith with Jesus. That's got to be at the center of a biblical ministry. And the second characteristic is this idea of the method. How do I do it? What has to be done God's way with a loving concern for those that you engage with and you minister to? See, the message of Jesus is the difference. And many of you may be familiar with the name Mark Zuckerberg. And if you're not familiar with Mark Zuckerberg, then you probably familiar with his company, Facebook. If you're not familiar with Facebook, then you're kind of on your own. I can't help you there. Um, actually, I thought earlier, I said, well, I'd say, hey, the, you know, the, the students over here, they would know what Facebook is. Then my son told me, Dad, you know Facebook's for old people. We don't talk about I'm like, what? I can't believe I learned that new. But Mark Zuckerberg, he's 31 years old. He's worth $35 billion, billion with a B. And Earlier this year, or last year, later last year, I guess, now we're in 2016, he and his wife committed to donating 99% of their wealth, $34,650,000,000, to philanthropic causes. They're going to give away 99% of their wealth. For me, that means that they're going to try to scrape by on $350 million a year, which, man, I you know, think gas is expensive. Actually, gas isn't expensive, but I know there's some expensive things out there. But they're going to give away all of their wealth, 99%, to philanthropics, to serve the world. But Mark Zuckerberg is an atheist, a professed atheist. There's no message of Jesus Christ. There's no message of a relationship that could affect your eternity. And man, I'm sure that that money is going to go to really making a difference in people's lives here for the short amount of time they live here. But in the absence of the message of Jesus Christ at the center of it, many of those people will leave this planet and live the rest of their life apart from their creator. And I know we might, none of us in this room might ever be able to get to a point where we could give away, I mean, if I'm honest with myself, 
I'd give away $34.65 billion to keep the other $350 million, but we won't. And if it doesn't have an eternal effect, then you could ask yourself, what value is it? In the book of Luke, we learn that what does a profit a man if he loses his soul? If he gains the whole world and loses his soul. See, Paul writes about this idea of being equipped for service so that we can build up the body, but it is about the message of Jesus Christ. And the ministry, your ministry, it's right where you are. It can be right where you are, right who you are with, right where you are doing, or right with what you are doing. For me, in my ministry, it's been most manifested itself where I work. And over the years, I've had an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. We've had some Bible studies. In fact, we recently started up a Bible study right before the, uh, before the holidays, started up a new study. Well, this time, it's the first study I've ever done at the office. Um, so I felt like, well, I better get approval from our human resources team, talk to the, our head of human resources, talk to our head of legal. They said, okay, Craig, yes, you can have a study. But our head of HR gave me a good piece of advice or a piece of advice. Not that it was bad or good. He said, um, yes, you can have a study, but you shouldn't invite anybody who works directly for you. That might create some tension for you. I thought, no problem. I got five people in the study that already committed. None of them are on my team. I work in another, with another group. All good. Four, work, four weeks later, the company came to talk to me uh, about, hey, we're going to change your job. We'd like for you to move to a different department. I moved to the different department. Now, three of the five people in the Bible study report to me and are on my team. I'm like, thanks, God. Here we are. You, gotta, you know, it was kind of easy, but he's mixing it up. We're now creating just a little bit of tension in the, uh, in the ministry. But there still is great opportunity. Imagine if, imagine If everybody in this room, when we left today, we viewed ourselves as a minister. Imagine if we walked out of here and seven days a week we said, you know what, we are a minister. And our congregation was those people who are closest to us, our family, our friends, friends of our neighbors, friends of our kids, whoever they might be. What type of impact do you think we could make on the world? And what type of impact do you think God could make through you? How many eternal addresses do you think could be changed? I am 100% certain, without knowing you all, that there are people in your life right now who don't know Jesus, and potentially, you may be the person that God calls to share that with them. Now, can God bring people to himself without us? Sure, he can. He's God. He can. But does he give us an opportunity to engage in what he's doing? You bet he does. And I would suggest to you, there is no greater adventure in life than to jump in to the work that God is doing. And see, God can even do it when we mess it up. I recently had a guy that I had talked to about faith who was showing up at my office, and I thought, man, I've really got to talk to this guy direct this time. I've played around, beat around the bush. The guy shows up at my office. He spends an hour in front of my desk, and I didn't say anything about faith. And he walked out, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I missed a great opportunity The very next day at work, that guy walks right into my office, sits right down in a chair in front of my desk. I said, what are you doing here? He goes, I had some time to kill, and so I thought I'd come in and see what you're doing. I'm like, oh, really? And I said to him, let me tell you why you're here in my office. God put you here in my office because I let you go yesterday, 
And God was like, look, McAndrews, I can do this without, I'll show you how easy this is. The guy should not have been in my office. And yet he showed up with some free time and we had a chance to talk about where he was in his faith with Jesus. So even when we don't, God can, but I would suggest to you that we're better off to engage in his work. See, the Apostle Paul captures it so eloquently in the book of Colossians. And in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, I want to suggest to you just for a minute, pretend like you're Paul. Just for one minute, we're going to pretend like we're Paul and that we're saying this to the people around us. And in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, of these people around me, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that, and this is our responsibility, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among Gentiles. I always feel like there should be like a dramatic drum roll here, ready for the mystery, and the mystery is this, it's Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then I think about saying this, the idea of, look, we proclaim him, I proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then in verse 29, I think he just throws the hammer down where any of us can have the opportunity to say, for this purpose, God, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You know, the Apostle Paul always does such a great job of finishing with, and it's Christ who works in me. It's his power which is manifested in me. I always think about it in terms of a big spotlight. And when that spotlight shines down on Paul, I always feel like he steps out of the way. It says, shine it on Jesus. And when it moves over to him, he pushes it back over to Jesus. I think this is the opportunity that every one of us have. See, we became ministers when we could relate directly to God, when Jesus died on the cross and split that curtain. No more middleman. Right to him himself. Right to, Jesus, right to God himself. And it's in that that God says, this is, this is the abundant life I have for you. It's available for every one of us who have chosen Jesus to lead our lives. So I'm going to wrap up with this. We're new year, new challenge. If you're one of those people who's into, you know, I'm going to set goals for 2016. I am. It drives my wife a little crazy sometimes. Like, seriously, can't we just have 2016? Can't we just be? But I'm going to leave you with this, uh, which is three P's. I graduated from uh, Stephen F. Austin, Axum Jacks, uh, marketing. So, you know, I got to make sure that we, you know, four P's of marketing. I'm going to make it easier. I got three P's of discipleship. Only three instead of four. But they are simply this. The first P is just pray. Pray that God will show you your congregation around you, right where you are. Pray that he'll show you, that he'll open up that opportunity for you. The second one is practice. And this idea of practice is just in two minutes, how can you share your testimony? In Christian circles, we call it a testimony. It's real simple. What was my life like before Jesus? How did I meet him? And how has my life changed since then? I assure you, if you have a testimony and have accepted Christ, you have that story. And what's so great about a testimony is no one can debate it. You can't refute someone's personal story. 
So practice telling your story. And then the last one is just pursue. Pursue the ministry where you are. Now, for many of you, it could look different. Maybe it's a one-on-one discussion with somebody you know is struggling a little bit from a, from a relationship standpoint. Or maybe it's somebody you know that the message of Jesus could make a difference in their life. Maybe it's a small group. You can have a little Bible discussion. I always find Bible discussions are a little bit easier than Bible studies. Sometimes Bible studies, people get a little bit like, hey, let's, talk, let's just have a Bible discussion. Or maybe there's just somebody in your life who's struggling with something that you know the Bible talks about. Or maybe there's a service opportunity even here at a church where you can engage with how God has equipped you to do his ministry. That part can look different, but the truth that all of us have to acknowledge is that we have access to this ministry. It's got to be Christ-centered, and it's got to be done God's way. So no doubt in my mind in a room this size that there are the people who just, you know what, I love Jesus, I made a commitment, and I'm engaged in the ministry. But I also know there's probably people in this room who haven't quite made a decision to surrender their life to Jesus. Maybe you're right there and you haven't quite gotten there yet. You're like, I don't know. So in just a second, I'm going to give you an opportunity to surrender your life to Christ. But I want to finish with this thought is that this ministry opportunity, it's a great adventure. It can be a great adventure. You will never know what God can do in you and through you until you engage in his program. So I'm going to pray for us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, would you do me a favor as I pray? Would you pray that somebody who doesn't know Christ in this room would make a decision to surrender to him right now today? Would you pray that with me? And then for those who are in this room who think, you know what, I want to surrender my life. I want a piece of the action that has an eternal impact. Then I invite you to, uh, to pray this as I, as I pray. Father God, um, it's such a blessing that you have given us to meet here, to uh, dig into your word. Lord, I would pray for anybody who doesn't know you today, Lord, that you would open their heart. And for those of who don't know you, Lord, that they would right now in the quiet of their own heart admit their sin, as you tell us in the Bible, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then that they would believe in Jesus Christ and he was risen from the dead. And we know that in that, Lord, they can be saved and they would surrender their life to you today to be part of the adventure that is your ministry. I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.